Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, we've been super, super busy with a bunch of different projects lately, uh, so I have not had a chance to record some podcasts in a few weeks. Uh, though we have a whole bunch lined up, so there will be plenty coming shortly. Uh, just please be patient with us. Uh, however, in the meantime, I was uh, once again a guest on Andy Levy's excellent The New Abnormal podcast uh, from The Daily Beast, talking about Utah trying to make it difficult to access pornography online and how Pornhub responded to that as well as some of the various attempts by Congress to protect the children online and discussing how well that is working or really how not well that is working. So consider this an interim podcast until we get our own podcast recorded, which will be coming soon, I promise. So in the meantime, uh, take a listen to me on The New Abnormal with Andy Levy. Thanks. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical Bringing precision to critical digital journalism With the singular vision of a modern monocle Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us Painting and taking on all the blatant hate and trolls Document the ways that they aim to take control Scrutinising through their lies and make them fold If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt To grab a shovel and dig up the tech If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt To grab a shovel and dig up the tech Pornhub pulls out of Utah and two new bills before Congress that purport to help protect people shockingly may not be what they seem. Joining me now to discuss is Mike Masnick, founder and editor of the Essential Tech Dirt blog at techdirt.com and CEO of the Copia Institute. Mike, thanks for coming back. Appreciate it. Yeah, always happy to be here. So let's start with the, well, the sexiest story, Pornhub, (laughs) which for those listeners pretending not to know is a huge streaming site for adult content, announced that it would cut off access to its platform from all Utah IP addresses in response to a new state law that, if I'm reading it correctly, requires anyone who wants to visit the site to go through an age verification process involving uploading a government-issued identification and also submitting to third-party facial recognition technology. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's basically a porn license uh, that you have to get with the state. <laughs> like you would normally have to get a driver's license. In this case, you just sort of have to register with the state saying, I want to see porn. Um, and there, there have been a bunch of states sort of trying to pass these kinds of bills. Uh, Louisiana was actually the first one that had a similar kind of bill go into effect. And now Utah's just went into effect. And Pornhub, in response, basically said, sorry, Utah, you can't see it anymore. <laughs> but what could possibly be wrong with the state having a database of people who want to watch porn? <laughs> Oh goodness, uh, and, and it is it is worth noting, by the way, that there was there was a study. There have been a few different studies, but there was a study going back to 2009 that was done at Harvard that found that residents of Utah subscribe to more porn than any other state. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. <laughs> there, there were a few later studies that called that into question, but but I did think it was somewhat <laughs> somewhat notable. Wow, there may be a lot of interest in porn in Utah. I have no idea why that might be. <laughs> None at all. All right, look. So obviously, this is one of those in the name of protecting the children laws that ends up absolutely. Destroyed 
destroying any semblance of privacy for adults, right? Yeah. I mean, just the idea that you would sort of have to declare publicly to the government that I want to see naked people seems like a questionable way of going about anything. And it's not really clear how that actually serves to protect anyone and certainly seems to put a lot of other people's private information and private interests at risk. Yeah. And you mentioned it's similar to driver's licenses, but it's like, okay, a driver's license is supposed to say that you know how to drive a car correctly. Is this supposed to prove that you know how to watch porn correctly? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have to take classes? Is there a test? Like, how does this work? There is no test. And also, I mean, importantly, like uh, a driver's license is about an actual you know, activity that is physically dangerous, whereas porn is protected speech. And so there are some First Amendment questions about sort of making you register to engage in or or consume First Amendment protected speech. I would hope so. I saw an article at the Daily Dot, and I I think other people have pointed this out, saying that Utah residents are, as they put it, flooding Google with VPN searches (laughs) uh, since this law took effect on the 3rd. Can you do a quick explainer of VPNs, virtual public networks, for our listeners in Utah and elsewhere? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to get into there, but just at the the simplest level, VPN basically disguises where your traffic is coming from. There's more to it than that. So basically, you're sending all of your traffic to a computer somewhere, and then it is sending all the traffic from there. And the indication to the end recipient of that traffic is that it's coming from that intermediary network. And that can be anywhere. And a lot of, not all, but a lot of VPN services allow you to pick where you are coming from. So you can, you know, anywhere around the world or pick a state, you know, a lot of them have, you can pick a different state. In most cases, you would pick a state closer to you because of the proximity makes it slightly faster. Um, But if you're trying to get around, say, an all Utah (laughs) porn block, you might want to pick, you know, another state like California or New York or Florida or wherever. Though I would imagine Florida may may soon have a similar law. So maybe don't pick Florida. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I I don't think I'd go with them. So the bottom line here basically is if you are even the slightest bit technically savvy, there's a pretty easy workaround for this dumb law. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you would just get a VPN or is similar to a VPN, but a proxy service that will any of these will just sort of make you appear like you're coming from somewhere else. It's relatively simple. There are free VPNs. I would urge people not to use a free VPN because they tend to be not great for your privacy, but there are very inexpensive VPNs and they will, in certain cases, protect your privacy and allow you to trick Pornhub into believing you're not in Utah. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. So Pornhub is owned by MindGeek, which I guess owns a lot of adult sites that I assume are also similarly not available in Utah. Yeah. So, I mean, I I believe that almost all of the sort of well-known bigger porn sites are almost all owned by MindGeek, which just was sold to like a private equity firm. And they have done the same thing. So so if you go to Pornhub from any of those sites from inside Utah or using a, a Utah IP address, you get a video of someone explaining to you why Pornhub is doing this and asking people to contact their state elected officials to complain about the law. Interesting. You mentioned that this might run afoul of some First Amendment protections. Is there any effort underway to challenge this law? I don't know of like an existing like in court challenge currently going on. I imagine there will be something soon. There have been in the past, there have been other cases that are not directly on point, but which I think would suggest that Well, you never know with this Supreme Court, but it should be considered unconstitutional. We've had different cases involving like the internet and free speech with Reno versus ACLU or ACLU versus Reno. 
And there have been ones about like protecting children from violent video games that has been struck down as unconstitutional. And so you combine all of that and it's pretty clear that this kind of law should be considered unconstitutional. But with the courts these days, who knows? All right. But I am uh, sending out a message to all any libertarian, any freaky libertarian lawyers <laughs> listening. Start filing some suits in Utah. Yeah. All right. So let's move to something called COSA, the kids online safety act that's before congress right now not for the first time i guess what is it and why is it so bad there have been a whole series of different laws that have all sort of been introduced in the last few weeks and COSIS may be one of the, the more that has more support than some of the others but it you know just from the name the kids online safety act you get a sense of what it is it's it's sort of buying into the same sort of belief that the internet is inherently dangerous for children and therefore we need to stop it it has a number of different elements to it the one that is probably the most concerning to me is it has this concept which sounds so nice of a duty of care which says that a website has to have a duty of care to protect children. And if they fail to live up to their duty of care, then they can be sued. And, you know, it's it's one of these things that sounds nice. Of course, a website should care about, you know, protecting children on their site. But when you frame it that way as a duty of care, what it creates is just like a license to file all sorts of crazy lawsuits. Because no matter, as soon as anything bad happens to a child who was using the internet, their family can then sue the platform and claim that the bad thing that happened was because that site failed in their duty of care to protect the children. So there are all sorts of examples of like bullying or eating disorders or self-harm where these are things that, you know, they are problematic and in some cases tragic and worrisome. They also existed pre-internet. And, you know, if a child was bullied at school, we didn't go sue the school for not magically being able to stop all bullying. If a child had an eating disorder, we didn't sue fashion magazines. There are all sorts of things that happen that influence how people behave and there's human nature. And pinning the blame on Internet services is questionable, but it will lead to a whole bunch of really sort of probably vexatious lawsuits against sites, you know, just claiming that that because something bad happened to their child and it wasn't magically stopped, uh, even if those things happened forever, uh, that 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 site has to pay up. So I guess I have two questions coming out of that. And the first is, you know, it would seem to me that let's say a website had a section on eating disorders. Yeah. You know, even if the section was like, here are ways to see if your child has an eating disorder or, or even just described eating disorders that sort of after the fact, a parent could go in and say, my child was exposed to the notion of eating disorders on your site. Yeah. And, and that's the big problem, which is like, there's this assumption built into all of this that like any exposure to like information about eating disorders or self-harm or, or other things is a cause of it and, and is, you know, is an influencer in creating the supposed harm. Reality is a lot more complex than that. And in fact, a few years ago for an article I wrote, I had gone through all of the research specifically on eating disorders. And it was actually fascinating and kind of surprising to me and somewhat enlightening and I think really important and totally ignored by all of the lawmakers, of course, which was that Early attempts by like Instagram and some other sites to stomp out conversations on eating disorder failed and actually made the problems worse. And, and for, for a couple of like really important reasons, one is that like generally, you know, teenage girls where eating disorders are most prevalent will figure out a way to have that conversation anyways. You can say like no conversations on eating disorder and they come up with language 
that, you know, routes around the filters. Like right. this is, this is just how the internet works. And right. when kids want to talk about something, they're going to figure out a way to do it. And so those conversations still happen, but they were less obvious to people who could actually help. So adults and, and school counselors and other kids. So a lot of those conversations still happened, but they were a little bit harder to, to find for people who could help. And a lot of the conversations then migrated to like darker areas of the web that were also sort of harder for adults to find and often were more extreme and more sort of, it's hard to say like doctrinaire, but like more focused on like pushing more people towards bad behavior. Right. Whereas the conversations that were happening on say Instagram and Facebook actually showed more people coming in to try and help people. So a lot of stories of people who had eating disorders, but figured out the way to help themselves or, you know, got help and then would go back to those communities and try and help others and, you know, sort of guide them to a healthier situation, which is really, really valuable and appeared to be really, really helpful. Whereas this sort of setup of COSA really says like websites should not have any information about eating disorders, good or bad, not allow for any sort of discussion. You know, your example is clear one too, where it's like, it would be dangerous to have even like how to spot an eating disorder or how to help someone with an eating disorder because of the risk that then you could be accused of failing your duty of care. And so that does not seem healthy to me. It sounds to me, Mike, like you're, you are insinuating that teenagers understand the internet better than Chuck Grassley. <laughs> Shockingly. And that is a very bold statement, my friend. <laughs> well, you know, I heard recently in a discussion on a slightly different topic. In the cybersecurity world, there's there's this concept of a APT, an advanced persistent threat, which is usually like, you know, foreign hackers, Russian hackers or whatever. But what this discussion was, was that an even bigger threat for many internet services or ideas like this is, is a different kind of APT, which is an advanced persistent teenager, <laughs> which <laughs> is that the teenager will figure out ways around whatever you're trying to stop them from doing. Yeah. But, you know, the lawmakers don't take that into account. No. So I was looking at the list of co-sponsors for for this atrocious bill. It's a long list. It seems like everybody wants a part of this. And it seemed like a pretty equal mix of Republicans, Democrats. So I'll ask you a question I asked EFF Cindy Cohn a few weeks ago. Why do both parties suck on stuff like this? I wish I knew. I mean- you know, I think it's just one of those things where like there's this general sense in the air, which I, I don't think is actually supported as much as they think it is by the data, that the Internet is just bad for kids. Um, there's actually plenty of evidence that for most kids, it is good or neutral, that it is allowing them to communicate, it's allowing them to find out information, it's allowing them to communicate with friends and family, it's allowing them to find out things about different communities or different lifestyles that are important to them. There are some kids for whom it is problematic and they have trouble dealing with the flow of information. And I believe it would be good to sort of figure out ways to help those teenagers who, who are struggling. But all the evidence is that that is a much smaller percentage of, of children who are impacted this way. But the stories of what happens to any of those kids are heart-wrenching and they, they, you know, and they sort of demand action by lawmakers when you hear about uh, a child who killed himself by suicide or uh, hurt themselves or is going through just a, a really, really troubling experience. Some of those are, are horrifying stories and they're very real and, and they're very sad. And I totally understand like the desire to do something about it. Sure. I mean, throughout history, lawmakers have always run to these kinds of stories where something bad happens to a kid and therefore we have to pass a law 
prevent that specific scenario from ever happening again. So I think there's there's just a lot of that going on. You know, it gets, gets a headline in the paper, Senator so-and-so protecting the kids. Uh, it's good for re-election time. Well, and, and that's actually a perfect segue to the last thing I want to talk to you about, which is the Cooper Davis Act, which is yeah. – literally named after a kid who I guess wanted to, uh, was splitting what he thought was a Percocet tablet with friends, and it turned out to be fentanyl or laced with fentanyl. So there's now this Cooper Davis Act that involves, it involves drugs, and in the language of the bill itself, would require electronic communication service providers, I assume that's internet providers, uh, websites, whatever, to report to the attorney general certain controlled substances violations. You refer to this as another attempt by Congress to regulate that which they don't understand. Yeah. I mean, it has this sort of vague language and that just is somewhat modeled after the setup that we currently have for child sexual abuse material, that if a website discovers that they have that material, they have to report it to this organization called NCMEC through a thing called the Cyber Tip Line. And it sort of mimics that, but for the potential of certain kinds of you know illegal drug sales. First of all, there's a, there's a big difference between like, if you come across child sexual abuse material, that is, there's a strict liability on it. It is fairly obvious what you have come across when you come across it. Illegal drug sales is not so easy for people to, you know, running a website to recognize whether or not that is actually happening on your website. Also, there's a lot of stuff that may appear that way or may reference illegal drugs. And, you know, sometimes that's joking. Sometimes it's like song lyrics. Sometimes it's quoting a, a book or a movie. There are all sorts of ways where that might come up. And all of those now need to be reported to the DEA just to avoid potential liability for failing to report these things. It's not clear how useful that will be if the DEA is suddenly flooded with millions of reports that have nothing to do with actual drug sales. It's not clear even if it was reporting like potential actual drug sales, how useful that would really be to the DEA. What are they going to do with all of these reports? And it's unclear to me how that even remotely would protect someone like in the situation of the fairly tragic story of of Cooper Davis, who, you know, was trying to take uh, what he thought was a Percocet and had it be laced with fentanyl. That had nothing to do with like clear illegal drug sales online. Right. All you're doing is making a lot of busy work for lots of different websites and, and online services and flooding the DEA with probably a lot of really useless information that they're not going to know what to do with. And I don't see how that's that's even remotely helpful to anyone. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to be the person at the DEA. I would imagine it's going to have to be way more than one person yeah. because you're going to end up, like you said, with just a flood of reports, most of which are chaff and very few of which are wheat. Yeah. Again, this feels like the kind of thing that is like, it gives Congress a number, right? And that, that's kind of like the exciting thing <laughs> for them. It's like, ooh, it'll give us a number of how many illegal drug sales. And it, it often sort of then becomes this lead up to even worse laws. And, and we're seeing that with NCMEC and the CSAM reporting, where we keep hearing stories and there are a bunch of these other bills that are based on the numbers of like reports to the NCMEC cyber tip line of child sexual abuse material, where bills are coming out where politicians are saying, look, you know, Facebook reported X number of million reports. And therefore, like that proves the problem. And it's like, it's unclear what that number actually means. That's just how many that Facebook is reporting. You know, if they compare it to like 10 years ago, there were fewer reports because there was fewer tracking of this thing. And there wasn't a, a system called photo DNA, which tracks a lot of that content. And so 
the reporting might just be that we're finding more of that content now. The really interesting question, which nobody looks into when it comes to child sexual abuse material, is what is the DOJ then doing with that information right. once, <laughs> once Nick Mick gives it to them? There are very, very few stories of finding the people actually responsible and arresting them, which is what the whole thing was supposed to do. And instead, everything is focused on how many reports there are. And so there are all these things about like passing laws to make it even more strict on the companies, but nothing about like giving the DOJ the tools and resources to actually track down the people responsible for this stuff. And so when you get that number, it just becomes it's sort of this new vector to, to pass even worse laws. And so I'm, I'm definitely worried about that as well. Yeah, it becomes the reason for being, which it's not supposed to be. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. Always a pleasure talking to you. You can definitely check out Mike at techdirt.com. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. You can follow him on Mastodon. I guess you can follow him on Blue Sky, but don't because he has like twice <laughs> as many followers as me, which is just stupid. <laughs> it's so stupid that someone like Mike Masnick has twice <laughs> as many followers as me just because he posts really interesting stories and important things. And I make dumb little jokes. It's just, it's dumb. I make dumb little jokes too. <laughs> I know. I know. I didn't, I giving you too much credit already. I didn't want to add to that. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.